this is all about how not to wait on the Lord. Waiting gone wrong, <laughs> you might say. Um, you know, most people don't imagine themselves as being vulnerable to the same kind of pride and idol worship uh, that Israel committed at the base of Mount Sinai uh, with the golden calf, that whole story. Um, and so people don't usually think through what really took place at the base of Mount Sinai to cause Israel to do and commit such unspeakable sin against God. Um, and when people think about how Israel abandoned God at Mount Sinai and they chose to worship a golden calf fashioned by their own hands, uh, they, people don't usually think about the fact that there's a process that went into that. Um, Israel actually fell into that foolish decision um, over the course of a process that took place. And I think the very simple answer to the whole, how did that happen? How did Israel get to that point? What took place? It's that they couldn't wait. That was the, that's the very simple answer, is that Israel couldn't wait. Moses went up Mount Sinai. He said, I'll be back. Didn't say when. I'm going to go and be with God, get what you need to hear, and come back down. They couldn't wait. And so often in our lives, maybe we're not prone to falling into such blatant idol worship, right? Maybe we're not prone to falling into that kind of idolatry and making a golden calf out of our money. But I'd venture to say that each of us is vulnerable uh, every single day to their bad decision, that same bad decision of choosing not to wait on God choosing not to wait on God. And when you learn how not to wait, right, um, you'll learn how to wait uh, inevitably as, as a result of that. So in other words, there's not just one way to learn something. You can also learn something by knowing how not to do that thing so you can do it better. Um, when people don't know how to wait on the Lord, um, they end up missing out on the fullest life that God has for them this side of heaven. And so it's really, really helpful um, for us to learn how to wait on the Lord. And one of the ways we can learn how to do that is by looking at biblical stories and looking at biblical characters uh, where, where people did not wait on the Lord and glean wisdom from that. And so I hope that this blesses you today. Some of, some of us are missing out on restoration, healing, breakthrough, um, intimacy with God, more financial provision, stronger relationships with the people around us, with our kids, with our spouse. And, and we're missing out on these things that God has in store for us, not because it's not the right time, but because we simply don't know how to wait. And so this is not to guilt trip anyone into waiting on the Lord and, and pressure you and go, well, well, I don't want to just, I want to wait on God so I can have more stuff. This is not about like me telling you to do this simply because you might be missing out on the fullest life God has for you, but also because God simply tells us to obey Him and wait on Him. And so uh, this decision to wait on God should be motivated, yes, by obedience, and yes, by this desire to please God and a desire for His glory. And then secondarily underneath that, there, there is also the byproduct of waiting on God is that you end up experiencing all that He has for you in this life. And so that's, that's okay. And one of the biggest things, I think, for me, is um, I was talking with some brothers last night. I struggle waiting uh, when it comes to my sanctification process and the transformation in Jesus that I long for and the place that I just want to be already and the sin I just want to get over and be done with and never go back to. I, I struggle, if there's anything I struggle with waiting for, yes, there's like material things in this world and physical things that I wish I could have and, and places I could be already in life. But when it comes to like my, my faith, my sanctification is often the greatest point uh, in my life of, for my impatience and the greatest reason for some anxiety that I feel. Sometimes I, I just don't like God's process. I don't like the pace He's set for my life. 
I don't like how, how fast he has decided for me to grow. Um, I just want to be completely over certain sins. You know, we just want to be over certain addictions. But his pace, I was reminded last night, that God's ideal pace of sanctification for us, it produces the maximum uh, character and Christ-likeness in us, which is fruit. Um, and that character that he develops through the process of our sanctification and transformation, that fruit, that Christ-likeness, is far better than just getting over a sin without that character to sustain and enjoy that. Uh, because but if you just get over something and you're like, I conquered that, I beat that, I'm done with that, you might fall into a greater sin, which is going to be pride and self-righteousness and this you know, independence of God. And I did this, look at what I did. And, and that sets you up for, I believe, a greater fall than this realization that I struggle with the sin, I'm weak and I lean on God and I wanna be over it. God, you want me to be over it. Can you get me over it faster? And so for me, one of the biggest waiting problems in my life is just my sanctification process. I'm just not where I want to be. And I want to get there faster. And I want to be done with these certain weaknesses faster. Um, and so maybe some of you can relate with that. But regardless of what you're waiting for, and we talked about you know the last episode, all these different things we wait for, um, we have to ask the question, hey, what does it look like to wait on the Lord? And we're exploring that throughout the series. But part of the way that we answer that question is by answering this question, what does it look like to not wait on the Lord? What is the anti-picture of waiting on God so we can avoid that and stay away from that? Um, and then, you know, by answering that, we can start to figure out how do I know I'm really waiting on God? Well, are you, are you emulating or imitating any of the things that we see in characters who did not wait on God? So um, I would encourage you as we go through this, Make sure you, you, you take notes. I'm gonna encourage you today to, to really take notes. Um, the first story we're gonna look at, and I encourage you to watch all the way to the end because by the time we get to the fifth story, you're gonna see a lot of common themes with people who could not wait on God. And when I say take out your notepad today, I really mean it because there are some things that each of you is really gonna need to hear and you're gonna need to hold on to that the rest of your life. It might just be one statement. So the first one we're going to look at is Adam and Eve. We're going to go in chronological order. I'm not going to tell you who we're looking at today until we get to each specific story. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve. The very first story of people who could not wait on the Lord. And you're going, I don't see any of that in this scripture. Hopefully you will. Okay, let's just read it. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which, by the way, God did not say that. The woman said to the serpent, he's, she's going to defend God here. Oh, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Ah, she defended God, right? Actually, she's going to add on something he didn't say too. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, either we don't have that recorded of God saying that, or he in fact did not say that, and Eve is putting words in God's mouth, which I think that's more likely the case. The serpent said to the woman, you won't die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, okay? What's the sale point right here? What's the pitch? Hey, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. The serpent's just taking a sip of his coffee watching seeing what Eve's gonna do. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, hmm. she's looking at the forbidden tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
the tree she should not eat from. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. I'm going to highlight that. She took its fruit and ate. She evaluated the forbidden fruit through the lens of the, of the serpent. She saw through the eyes of the serpent. She saw it differently. She took it. Okay? There's a seizing here. There's a taking, right? There's a grabbing and reaching. And she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And they, we know how the story ends up. But the point here is uh, we, we see Eve who wants something that God said, hey, do not eat that. Okay, do not eat the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if, let me say it like this, if the knowledge of good and evil was necessary for Adam and Eve to rule the earth as image bearers of God, like if God knew they needed that eventually, then God would have given it to them, uh, right? His way and his timing, how he wanted, if it's, that, if it's what they, they needed to actually rule the earth and grow in that. Um, the problem is, not the fact that the scripture doesn't say God would never give them the knowledge of good and evil. It seems like they would need that to actually rule, you know, um, properly under the authority of God. Not this knowledge of good and evil that they have now experientially, right? But an actual discernment and recognizing and knowing and being able to rule justly and in a way that honors God. That kind of thing. So I think, I don't think this is speculation too much. But what Eve reaches out for potentially... Um, by by resisting that temptation and saying no to it, uh, through that, would God maybe have given them uh, over time a, a good knowledge of good and evil rather than this, this negative one? Because she doesn't end up uh, knowing good and evil like God, the servant lies. She ends up knowing good and evil in a different way, right? God doesn't partake in sin. He doesn't, there's no evil in him, right? He doesn't participate in wickedness. Eve does. Adam and Eve do. They participate in sin. They do what's evil and they bring death into the world. That's very different. Okay. And so um, Eve wanted the forbidden fruit. If you read it, she may eat of the fruit. Uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. She defends God. The serpent says, ah, you won't die. Now watch what, watch what happens. Okay. The serpent's big sale point is this. You can be like God and know good and evil yourself. In other words, you won't need God. You won't need him. You can be God yourself and know good and evil yourself, not rely on him to tell you what's good and evil according to his categories. You can define it on your own terms and know good and evil, like God. That's the, that's the sales pitch, right? So she wants the forbidden fruit to make her like God so she could be independent, autonomous. She didn't want to need God. That's one of the big attraction points for Eve when she's looking at the fruit now going, hmm, it's desirable to make me wise. It's good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, but this, this whole desiring to make me wise is, I, God will, I won't need God in the equation anymore. I won't need to lean on Him and rest in Him and, and look to Him to tell me what's good and, and bad. I can do that myself. And so, what caused Adam and Eve to not wait on God, right, to not rely on Him, and to not trust in Him, and to not even like, really the character of God is under attack here by the serpent. The character of God is under fire. Serpent's going, ah, God knows. He's just holding out on you, really. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's just holding out. You could be like him. He doesn't want you to be. So the serpent attacks the character of God, attacks his word, undermines how faithful and trustworthy he is. And so the, here's the first point, okay? When it comes to not waiting on God correctly, I'm going I'm to state all of these as negatives. And then you can like reshape them as positive statements, okay? But this is just how the sermon is framed up today. You're not waiting on God 
when you want something in order to not need him. Okay, let me say that again. You know you're not waiting on God when you want something in order to not need God or in order to remove him from the equation. Like if I just get this house, if I just get into this place in my career, if I just have this much financial stability, if I just get to this place in my life where, where I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm over this addiction and I'm healed, I won't need God anymore as much. And to want something that in your mind eliminates your need for God or need to rely on him is, is already a, an indication that you're not really waiting on God. Adam or Eve, at least, goes, I want that fruit so I don't need him. I can be my own God. And we're going to see the same thing happen at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, second thing is this. She wanted the fruit to make her wise instead of trusting God to do that. Now, the narrative never says that God would not have given them a proper knowledge of good and evil. It never says God wouldn't give them a, 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 a wisdom to rule and govern and steward the earth under his authority. It never says he wouldn't. Um, so I, I think, I'm just speculating here a little bit, but I think there's reason within the scriptures to think this, is that God would eventually, over time, as they uh, grow as image bearers of God or, or whatever that, that looks like, God would have given that to them. If it was necessary to rule the earth, God would not have withheld that. The problem is the servant frames it up, at least a perverted version of wisdom, frames that up and goes, you can have this so you don't need God. So when she looks at the fruit, right, instead of trusting God and running to him with that desire, because here's what she could have done. Here's what I've never really considered. There's an initial desire now to be like God and to know good and evil. Foof, that's now a desire. That's a desirable thing for Eve. Instead of seizing it for herself, she could have taken that desire to God and said, hey, the servant told me I can know good and evil like you and be like you. This is a desire I, I have. Instead of seizing the fruit myself, I'm choosing to bring it to you. I'm choosing to come to you, God. Will, will you satisfy this in the way that, that, you're, that, that I'm supposed to have it satisfied? Will you answer this cry the way that it's supposed to be answered? Well, would you kind of eliminate this desire if it's wrong? Like She didn't take her need to God or desire for this thing. She didn't take it to God to let him do with it what he would have. She looked to the fruit. She said, I can get this and not need him. And she looked to the fruit to make her wise instead of trusting God to do that. She looked to the fruit to make her know good and evil instead of trusting God to like reveal the knowledge of good and evil over time in the proper way. She thought she could shortcut the process. And so the second point is this. I think when you're not waiting on God, uh, you trust something else to do what only God can. You're not waiting on God properly when you trust in something else to do what only God can. When you think about the peace that God alone can give, when you think about the healing and the comfort God alone can give, and you trust in something else in place of Him, there's nothing wrong with like using the worldly uh, not worldly, but like the things that science has discovered for like healing. Like, I'll never see a doctor because I trust God. No, it's, it don't look to the medical industry in place of God, but use what God has made available. Don't be dumb. But it's this, it's this, it's this tightrope walk of, I want to use what God has made available and believe that God can work through those things, but I never want to replace God with those means, with those things he uses, right? Th those aren't my gods. Those aren't my hope. And so when it comes to like, uh, again, for some reason, this is just on my hard money. And you're like, if I just 
had more money, that would give me relief. That would give me comfort. That would help me sleep at night. I think you're looking to money to do something that only God can, which shows me you're not really waiting on God. You're waiting on money and you're going, no, no, I'm waiting on God to give me more money. Okay, you're waiting on the blessing of God and the resource of God rather than God himself. So when you look at something and you trust in that thing to do what only God can and you replace God in the process, uh, you're not waiting on God. You're not. Third thing is this. The character of God comes under fire by the serpent. And essentially, the serpent is undermining the, wor- the trustworthiness of God and the goodness of God. Because he's saying, look, God knows you will be like him and no good and evil. He's holding out on you. So now Eve starts to fall into the trap of, maybe I can't trust God. So I got to seize this for myself. Because maybe his, his, his intentions toward me aren't good. Maybe he doesn't have our best in mind. The serpent is kind of leaking his perspective of God into Eve and trying to influence her to see God the way he does. Not trustworthy, no good intentions, doesn't have their best in mind. And that causes Eve to do what? Reach out for the fruit, assume to know better than God, and go against God's word to get what she wanted. So she's willing to violate God's word to do what he said not to do, right? She thinks she knows better, because I can be like God, God's holding out on us, maybe he's not trustworthy. And she assumes, that's the big thing right here, is the serpent is convincing Eve that he knows better than God, right, and God's holding out. But also, it's this, it's that Eve actually now can say, hey, maybe I know better than God, because the serpent told me that, essentially, that he sees something and knows something, God's holding out on us, and, and I can know better than God and take this for myself, I don't need God. You're not waiting on God when you assume to know better than him. And you're, I know you're going, you're, I, I don't, I would never, I would never say that. You're right, you would never say that, but you live like it. You make decisions like it. You don't trust his timing and his method in a way where it tells us you, you really do believe he knows better than you. You lean on your own understanding. When you're in situations where you're cornered, you go, what, what can I do? What can I, what can I scheme up? Who can I call? What can I start Googling? How do I get out of this? How do I make this happen? How do I proceed farther? And you don't trust in what God knows and can do. You, you trust in you. You know, I know better than God. And it, and, and it comes off as when you disobey him, that's what you're saying. If you're willing to disobey him, then you are saying, I do indeed know better than him. So, if the knowledge of good and evil, again, was necessary for them to rule the earth, which, again, it's not explicitly stated, whether it was or whether God would, just the narrative seems to imply that, that, that the serpent is offering a perverted version of what God would have given um, if it was necessary. The problem is, she didn't run to God with those desires. She said, I have a desire. I need to seize what I want and get what I want without God in the equation, right? because I can't really trust him to give it to me. Is that not what we do in everyday life? We see a need in our life. I see a financial need. I see a physical need. I see a need in my family. I see a relational need. I see a need to to be over this addiction. And I go, hmm, I'm gonna make this happen myself. I'll figure it out. And you work yourself to the bone and you try and figure it all out. And in the process, at the end, you go, "How, how did I get here? You thought you knew better than God and you leaned on your own understanding. And Eve was willing to violate the law of God. There's no law here. There's no law. 
There is. God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a law. That's a command. She chose to rebel to get what she wanted. Same with Adam. They chose to rebel and disobey. When people are not waiting on God, they're willing to disobey to get what they want. Whether it's immediate pleasure, I just have this angst, I have this, I have this pleasure that needs to be satisfied right now, I have this, whatever it is, you want something in the moment right now. You're not waiting on God when you violate God's ways to get what you want. If you're willing to scheme and be just a little, just deceptive enough to get away with it and get something that you want without anyone knowing, if you're willing to compromise your values, if you're willing to like, um, whatever it is, okay, lie, connive, gossip in the process, you know, undermine someone's character, tear them down. If you're willing to violate God's ways to get what you want, like Adam and Eve, I promise you, you are not waiting on God the way you think. Sometimes my kids disobey me <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Sometimes they do it because they want something. And in the end, they say, when I go, why did you do that? Like my five-year-old, we can have these conversations. I go, Salem, why did, you, why did you not listen to what I said? He goes, ah, but I really wanted fill in the blank. And he begins to justify his disobedience with his own desire. I had this such a strong desire for this. I knew I could get it. And so I didn't really regard what you said. And all he's focused on is the fact that he wanted something. What I said doesn't matter to him. What I told him doesn't matter to him. He's focused on one thing. He's got tunnel vision on, I want this right now. And I don't care what my dad said. I'm going to reach out and get it, even if I have to disobey him, because his desire is ruling his life in that moment. He doesn't have the language for it, but he's saying he knows better than me and he doesn't trust me. And he's looking to his own desires as more reliable and trustworthy than me and my word. And we do this with God all the time, man. Second story is in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah. If you thought Adam and Eve were bad, human wickedness in the, in the biblical narrative just gets progressively worse, okay? Right after Adam and Eve, Cain kills Abel. And you're going to start to see more and more abuse, even with those whom God has called and said, this, I'm going to use this guy. These people, these scumbags, you know, we're all messed up. But you start to look at these people and go, I would never. It's like, well, I don't know. Like, maybe you would. Maybe you're not as good as you think. But what Abraham and Sarah do here is pretty toxic. Okay. Let me frame it up for you. Abraham, at 75 years old, was called by God around that time, at least that's what the text indicates. We see that recorded in Genesis 12. Abraham's called at 75 years old. God gives him a promise. This is the first promise we have recorded in scripture of Abraham being told by God, I'm gonna bless you, give you a nation. That assumes offspring. So essentially, at 75 years old, God tells Abraham, I know your wife's got a dusty womb. I know you got no kids, but I'm about to bless you. Okay, 75 years old. In Genesis 16, okay, he is around 85, 86. Because I believe 86, he's 86 when uh, Ishmael is born. Ishmael is technically his firstborn, um, but not the promised son. So, read the text. Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. That's going to set up the story. Letting you know, we are now 15, no, 10 plus years removed from the promise. It's been 10 plus years. No children. Sarah still got a dusty womb. 
but she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, okay, behold, what did the serpent come and tell Eve? Kind of a similar thing that's about to take place. Sarah said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, is that a true statement? Was God restricting and preventing Sarah from having children? We don't know that. Just the fact that she doesn't have child yet. But she goes as far as to say, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, therefore go into my servant. What's she saying? She's making it an indefinite lifelong thing. Otherwise, she could hold out and go, well, he's going to heal me. He's going to bring offspring. He's going to, make my, he's going to open my womb so I can have a baby. But she's kind of cut off that option because she goes, go into my servant. It may be I'll obtain a child by her. Okay, there's a, it's a different culture. Okay, I don't have time to explain. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. This is, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, she conceived. Okay, so remember how Eve took the fruit? Well, here we have Sarah taking Hagar. It's a person, though. This time it's not a fruit. It's a person. It's seizing. Right? It's taking matters into her own hands. I'll take my servant. Here, Abram. Give me a child. Gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Different culture. He went into Hagar. She conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar, she looked with contempt on her mistress. She starts, she starts looking down on Sarah. Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. She thinks she's better than me. Now she's got a baby. She's the big bad woman now. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, look, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. This right here. This abuse, this oppression, this treating human beings as not image bearers of God, treating them as less, minimizing their value. Sarah dealt harshly with her. And then Hagar runs away and the Lord finds her. Here's what I want you to notice in this story. Abram and Sarah are waiting for a promised son. God gave them a promise. He said he would. They grow impatient. Abram, Sarah, looking at the fact that she has no children, they're up there in years. She's going, maybe he meant like through Hagar. Hagar, come here. Okay, Hagar, you're Abram's wife now. You're going to have a child. It's going to be mine. That's how God's going to do this thing. They take God's promise into their own hands. Okay. There's a pressure here because look, Sarah goes, the Lord has prevented me from having children. I mean, they ain't getting any younger. They are up against time. So the, there must have been some of that pressure involved, right? Abram has no children. He's 86 when Ishmael's born. He won't have Isaac until he's 100 years old. <clears throat> I'll say that again. He won't have Isaac till he's 100 years old. Most of us aren't going to see that age, let alone have a baby at that age. We don't know if God always intended to wait that long, though. So here's what happens. Abram's 100 years old, has a son, the promised son, Isaac, right? Did God always intend to make Abraham wait that long? We don't know. Was that the ideal time frame? We don't know. It, that's just, it just happens when Abram's 100 years old. Could potentially here, Abram and Sarah kind of scheming and going, well, 
Let's make it happen. Let's make this thing happen. God told us he would. Maybe he meant through Hagar and they scheme and they lean on their own understanding and they abuse Hagar in the process. Is this abuse of Hagar maybe something that delayed the promise a little bit? Not that God wouldn't do it, but now it's delayed a little bit. Now you've got to wait till he's 100. We don't know. Okay, we don't know. But they did wait so long that it didn't seem like Sarah was actually the vessel kids would come through. Okay. I'll say that again. Because some of you are in this exact same position. They waited so long that they gave up on Sarah being the vessel for a kid. They grew impatient and they start looking for another option. Since option A didn't work for so long and Sarah's womb ain't getting younger, they move on to Hagar. They try and figure out on their own how God would potentially bring the promised son. So they make it happen themselves. Here we have the difference between works and grace, right? Uh, striving and promise, right? Faith and then this self-righteousness that we're going to see in Galatians that these two sons, these two women are actually juxtaposed. Because um, Abraham and Sarah working to make it happen instead of trusting God to make it happen, and it ruins a lot of stuff, okay? We can see in this story that they allowed the frustration of what they, don't, what they didn't see to drive their decisions. There might have been some confusion, some anxiety, some pressure from getting older and not seeing it happen. Whatever it was, here's the first point when it comes to Abraham and Sarah. You're not waiting on God when you allow the frustration of what you don't see to drive your decisions. When you act out of this, I'm frustrated that I don't see this happening. When you allow that to drive your decisions and make you do stuff, you're not waiting on God. You're actually allowing the pressures and the confusion and the anxiety and frustration of life to drive your decision like Abraham and Sarah. They're looking around, potentially frustrated. It's been 10 plus years. How long are we waiting? Is it going to happen? They've given up on Sarah, it seems like. So let's move on to Hagar and see if she's the option. That's not the right way. They schemed and connived and figured it out and trusted in their own human wisdom and understanding. No bueno. Okay. But notice this. It's been 10 plus years. Okay. Give or take. Sarah's decided what? That the Lord has prevented her from bearing children. And it seems to be an indefinite statement. Meaning she's going, it seems like I, my womb is closed permanently. Right. We are permanently closed down. And Abraham, she, she thinks Abraham should try and have a son by another woman in their household, Hagar. So they both act out of impatience, out of a place of not seeing what they wanted. But not only that, it's not just that they didn't see what they wanted to see and it wasn't happening. It's this. It's that they didn't see it happening as quickly as they wanted it to or in the way they wanted to. In other words, Sarah is about to act and make this bad decision, and, and, and Abraham too. They're about to make this bad decision because they had their own time frame. They had their own man-made deadline they were working with. God has not yet, so, well, God never said this time frame is the right one to work with. They made that up themselves. They put their own deadline on God. And since, since you haven't, we'll move on to Hagar. You're not waiting on God when your preferred time frame becomes the basis for your decisions. You and I, we all would prefer God to do things faster, yeah? 
Can you just hurry up and get us a place to live? Can you just, God, can you hurry up and, and direct my family and I where we need to be going and, and give us a job to direct us there? God, can you just change our financial situation already? We're waiting. God, can you get me over this, this, this cancer and this physical uh, issue in my body? Can you just get me over it already? We're, we're waiting. There's a time frame. It's a time frame. Can you do it faster? And we have this time frame like, I'm believing and expecting God to do it in so-and-so time frame. You might call that faith. If it's not a time frame that's rooted in scripture or confirmed and validated by God, it's no longer as faith-filled as you think. It's not faith when you go, God, I'm going to hold you hostage to my preferred time frame and I'm going to call it faith. It's not faith. Faith is actually trusting God's timing is better than yours, even when you prefer he does it faster. And you go, I want you to move faster, faster, faster. But even with that desire, I'm willing to wait and trust that your time is better. Now that's faith. Not going, God, you will do this in this time. It's going to happen tomorrow. You're going to get me a car. It's going to arrive in my driveway. I'm going to open the front door and go, what a surprise. I believed. You don't hold God hostage to your time frame. That's not waiting on him. Abraham and Sarah seem to be doing that. Well, God didn't do this yet. Maybe never. A, a, a not yet turns into a never. Isn't that weird? How we go, well, God hasn't done it yet, so he must never. And we exaggerate and blow things out of proportion. That's what's happening here. And Abraham and Sarah, they scheme. They, out of their own human wisdom, their worldly understanding, and they assume to know what's best. Guess what they don't do? They don't consult God for this decision. They did what was right in their own eyes. They leaned on their own understanding. Who did that in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. They reached out for what they wanted in their timing, on their terms, instead of trusting God and consulting Him and running to Him with that desire, with that frustration, with that confusion. They leaned on their own understanding and said, oh, I think we'll take this for ourselves. You're not waiting on God when you take His promises into your own hands. You're not. If God has told you something and confirmed it over and over through prophetic voices and other godly people in your life and just over and over there's this confirming word of I'm going to, this will happen. And you take that promise or something you can see in scripture, sanctification, and you take that promise into your own hands and you start, well, if God hasn't moved yet, let me get to work. There's a difference between faithful service that's in, in faith and hopeful expectation, right? As opposed to, I'm going to do this stuff because I don't trust God's going to come through as fast as I want to. There's a difference. A lot of us work and we're going, I'm faithful. I'm just a man of integrity. I'm just a hard worker. No, you don't trust God and you're not willing to rest in Him, right? While you're doing your part, you're doing more than what He's told you to do. You're doing a lot more than He told you to do and it's actually causing frustration. God never told Sarah and Abram, go take Hagar. They did that themselves and created all this frustration and, and all this destruction in their life. Okay? So when you don't wait on God and you take his promises into your hands, you're presuming to know better than him. And you're going, well, God's plan, his method, his timing isn't good. I'll come up with a better one. We hear this from atheists all the time. Well, if God was real, he would, oh, Papas, you're assuming to get your understanding of the world is ultimate and God should, you know, submit himself to that. You're holding God hostage to what you believe is best, to your, your limited understanding of the world. Isn't that funny? We do the same thing. And when you don't wait on God, 
it sometimes looks like I assume to know better than him. And since he's not moving as fast as I want, and since he's not doing it the way I want, since I don't see any progress or movement in my life, I'll take matters into my own hands. I know you told me you will. Maybe I'm the way you're going to do it. Again, we'll get to this in later episodes. Waiting on God is not inactivity or laziness, but it's also not presumptive action where I'm self, I don't know, relying on myself and doing stuff and making it happen myself. It's not self-centered. Okay. When you're scheming and planning and trying to figure out something without consulting God or trusting on, in him and leaning on his word, you pro- you're not waiting on him. You can call it hard work. You can call it unfaithful. Not as holy as you think. <laughs> and when you're not waiting on God, you don't consult God before you make a decision. You don't look to him in all your ways. You lean on your own understanding. You define what's good and evil. And so when, I'll tell you this, you're not waiting on God when you act without consulting God or his word. If you make a decision that was not at all through the filter of God's word, or what does God think about this? Who is he as I'm doing this? What does his word say about this? God, what do you want me to do when you don't do any of that? And you presume to know best and you act out of the flesh, you're not waiting on him. You're actually assuming to know better than what his word says. And by the way, look at, look at this. This, this is what they say. Sarah goes, hey, go into Hagar. Weird recommendation, Sarah. I thought you're my wife. It may be I'll obtain a child by her. It's not even concrete for sure going to happen. It says maybe. They're acting on a maybe? How many times do you and I act out of a maybe and we make it more sure than it is? So, so they're doing what seems right. It'd be different if they're doing something they knew would work for sure. Instead, it's maybe the Lord will give us a son. It's not a concrete fact. They acted on a maybe without consulting God to confirm that suspicion. It's different if you're like, maybe God will do something. We'll see this with Jonathan in future episodes. Jonathan has a suspicion. He's the son of Saul, King Saul. He's like, I, I want to go over there and destroy the Philistines. Maybe God's going to go with us. Let's kind of set some stuff up to let God confirm along the way. That's very different than Sarah and Abraham going, maybe God's going to use Hagar. Hagar! It's very different. They're acting on a maybe. They're assuming their suspicion is correct. You're not waiting on God when assumptions or uncertainty drives your actions. You're not waiting on God when your suspicions, your assumptions or uncertainty is driving your actions. How many of you guys are making decisions right now based off pure suspicion, based off a maybe, an assumption, and uncertainty? Whether it's where to move, or who to get married to, or should I get into a relationship with them, or should I jump into a business venture with them, or are they trustworthy, should I reach out to them again? You're making decisions based off those pure things. And you're assuming to know what's best, and you're doing what seems right. There's a difference between doing what's actually right and what seems right. If you think something's right, you can at least bring that to God to let him confirm or deny that it's indeed right. Last thing is this, Abraham and Sarah were willing to abuse Hagar in the process. Regardless of how much you chalk this up to culture, that there's abuse going on. Do to her as you please, deal harshly with her. 
There's, there, there's this minimizing the value of Hagar as an image bearer of God, okay? Okay, regardless of, well, he's a concubine, and he's te- she's technically his wife now. They grew so impatient that they were willing to disregard the well-being of those around them. They were willing to hurt people in the process. They were willing to step on someone to get what they wanted because they so didn't trust God. When you don't trust God, I'm going to tell you right now, you end up doing things that not only hurt people around you, that not only cause destruction in the lives of those around you, but also things that you potentially never would have thought you'd ever do. When my son really wants something, and my, my daughter, she'll just walk into the playroom, there's toys everywhere, right? Never go into a playroom, because there's nowhere to step. She'll grab a toy off the floor, it's like a, something goes off in him, and he's like, someone has my toy. He could be like on the other side of the planet, and he's like, someone has my toy. He sprints into the playroom, right? Finds her on the floor playing with something he hasn't played with in weeks. And he goes, give it to me. That's mine. And he rips it out of her hands. And if she's not, if she's got a strong grip, man, she got that gorilla grip. So she's holding on tight, right? She'll, he will hurt her in the process to get that toy out of her hand. He's not willing to be patient. He's not willing to come to his parents and, and wait on us for a solution. When he really wants something that, that she has that's his, he'll take matters into his own hands. He'll even hurt his sister to get what he wants. And he's unwilling to wait for it. And I'll go, buddy, like, this is the conversation we need to have all the time. Do you love your toys more than your sister? No, I love my sister. Didn't look like it. Like she got a bruise on her cheek and you're missing two legs now because she's just that much stronger than you, but it doesn't look like you were patient and loved her more than your toy. It looked like you loved your toys more than her. So you have to start asking yourself, do you love what you're going after more than you love God if it's indeed something different? Or, right, another question, are you really willing to disrupt other people's lives in the process just to get what you want. Maybe you're not going to hurt someone directly. Maybe you're not going to blatantly like cause them injury. But are you going to disregard the well-being of those around you to get what you want? That's probably evidence you're not waiting on God. The next story is in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, we have Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. They are not willing to wait. They're not. Exodus 24, the Lord says to Moses, hey, come up to me on the mountain, wait there. I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. So Moses is called to wait on the mountain for God to give him the law for the people, which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with Joshua, his assistant. Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, right, the elders who were going to oversee and manage the people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And he tells them, hey, wait here for us until we return to you. What's the time frame? Until we come back. So it's at least guaranteed that he's going to come back, just not when. And they're waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. How far Joshua goes up, we don't know. Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses goes up. The cloud covers the mountain. Fast forward to Exodus 32. 
This is why the thumbnail on this video looks the way it does, because the golden calf situation is nothing that we see in our modern world is nothing new. It's just history repeating itself. Okay, what you're seeing on TV and th at these events where you're like, that's demonic worship. That's obviously pagan idolatry. Nothing new. Just a, a, a modern version of it, repackaged. When the people saw Moses delayed, well, hold on, who said Moses delayed? That assumes there's a time frame to measure that delay against, right? If I tell you I'll be there in two days and it's been four days, something's delaying me. How do you know that? Because there was an expected time frame by which you could determine I'm delayed. So where does, how is Moses delayed if they don't even know when he's coming back down? What this is really saying is they don't see Moses come down as fast as they want. So when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves, sounds like the Tower of Babel, hey, let's all come together and build something up to heaven and get to God on our terms. <clears throat> they come to Aaron and they said to him, make us gods. In other words, just like Adam or Eve reaches out and seizes the forbidden fruit, just like Adam and Eve reach out and seize Hagar and take Hagar, Eve takes the fruit, well, here they're taking the gold that they had from the Egyptians and they're making it into what they want. They're reaching out for what they want, turning it into the gods that they really desire in their heart. And they come to Aaron and say, make us gods who shall go before us. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're taking matters into their own hands, right? They're leaning on their own understanding. Hmm. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of out of the land of Egypt. Whoa, 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 who brought you out of the land of Egypt? God or Moses? Well, God used Moses. Okay, well, who's the real source of that salvation? It seems like they're putting a lot of credit. Which, by the way, Moses was used as an extension of God. Just like he tells us, what I'm to you, you'll be to Aaron. That kind of thing. So Moses is that prophet, that prophetic voice, that shepherd, that Christ-like figure, right? But they seem to be giving Moses more credit than he's due. God brought them out of Egypt with the hand of Moses. We don't know what, he be, what became of him. So guess what? Aaron goes, well, Aaron's actually like, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives. By the way, God gave them those through the hands of the Egyptians. The gold they're about to turn into a calf was a gift of God. It was a gift. And bring them to me. They're about to take a gift God gave and turn it into their God. That's a word for some of you. <laughs> so all the people took off the rings that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. Right, they're bringing them. He received the gold, fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. The gods they're accustomed to of Egypt. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought us out of Egypt. Yes! Only problem is, they're not. They're not gods at all. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. My boy Aaron is making all kinds of provision for this golden calf. They're like, we want a God. He's like, get your gold. He's going to tell Moses later, oh, the people. Come on, Aaron. Like, you're, making, you're making an altar for this thing. You're telling them how to do it. You're not just doing it. You're telling them what to do to be a part of the process. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Really? By worshiping a false god? They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings 
and peace offerings to what? To the golden calf. It's in the name of the Lord. Don't we do that too? Sometimes we call idolatry worship unto God. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. This word play, as you're going to see throughout the rest of scripture, is more of an orgy. YouTube's going to ban me for that. Great. Keywords, man. Freaking keywords. Trigger words. Sorry, YouTube algorithm. Sorry, Master Sensei. I will not use that word again. Israel at Mount Sinai is a classic example of people who did not know how to wait. You know what they grow tired of? They go, grow tired of waiting. Uh, when they saw that Moses didn't come down, they, he delayed. They get tired of waiting. Um, they move on to other gods they make themselves. Essentially, they had a backup plan. They had another option. They were not wholeheartedly committed to the God of Israel alone. Moses delayed, didn't come as fast as they wanted. They replaced God with what their hearts really wanted. They weren't waiting for God. They thought they were waiting for Moses and what he could do for them. Because they, instead of going, where is God? They're going, where's Moses? Right? They, they have an unhealthy view of Moses' leadership as if to be more than what he is, I believe. It seems like they kind of idolize Moses, yet at the same time they want to kill him later. It's this weird thing. Um, but they regard him a little too highly and credit him with things that God is the source of. Um, here's what I want you to see, first of all, that we can learn from this story. You're not waiting on God if you have backup gods to fall back on. If you have a just-in-case God doesn't come through and you got a suitcase full of potential other options, just in case God doesn't come through, I got my suitcase full of backups. I got a shelf full of other gods I can dedicate myself to. I won't worship them, but I'll, but I'll look to them as my hope and my, and my value will be in that. My trust will be in that. My identity will be, will be in that. If you have backup gods to fall back on in case God doesn't come through, you ain't waiting on God. Waiting on God means he's your only hope, not just another option. Second thing is this, Moses didn't come back on their time. How do we know that? Moses delayed. Again, God never told them when. Moses never told them when. They decided he's taking longer than he should. They had their own kind of deadline in their own mind. He's delaying. But what they concluded was a delay. Actually, God saw us right on time. Because Moses needed to be up there as long as God wanted him up there. Um, and then Moses would come back down when God was done with him. Israel placed a man-made deadline on Moses that God never told them to. They decided how long they'd wait for Moses. Rather than trusting in God's timing to bring Moses back down, they decided their own deadline. Here's the, here's the second, third, second point when it comes to Mount Sinai. You're not waiting on God if you hold God hostage to your man-made deadlines. That's what they did. They decided as a people, or maybe someone spoke up and said, he's taking too long. Yeah, he's taking too long. Yeah, where's Moses? Hey, Aaron, he's taking a little while. Can you make us a God? Sure, bring your gold. I didn't think you'd answer like that, Aaron. Sweet. They held God hostage to their man-made deadline. Do we do that? God, by now I should be married. By now I should have a house. By now I should be farther in life. By now I should be out of this deadbeat job. By now I should have more financial provision. By now I should be over this anxiety and depression. By now I should at least have zero suicidal thoughts. By now I should be over this sin. It should be done. When did God tell you 
when he would do those things and when you should expect to have those things happen. When did God tell you that? Now, if he confirmed over and over and there's a deadline you're expecting and hoping and believing for, but it's you constantly have gotten clarification and confirmation and prayed and fasted and looked in the word and you sat before God and out of that abiding presence of God, you know, this, this expectation of a deadline has, has kind of naturally been born out of that. That's different. That's very different. You know, they actually say, we don't know what became of him. Do you see it? We don't know what happened to Moses. Hold on. That doesn't mean he's dead. That doesn't mean move on. <gasps> so they're uncertain about what happened to Moses. Now that uncertainty caused them to make inappropriate decisions. They acted on uncertainty. In other words, Israel has now decided we're going to make a decision based off what we don't know. We don't know if he's coming back. We don't know if he's dead. So let's act on that as if it's, you know, a concrete fact that Moses is just not coming down. Uncertainty. They assumed something of Moses that seemed to justify their decision to choose other gods. And again, you're not waiting on God if you act on man-made deadlines God never gave you. You're not. That's a little different than holding God hostage to my man-made deadlines is that if I have my own deadline, I'm not holding God hostage to it, but I'm going to act. If I don't see God do it in this time, I'm going to make a decision. When did God tell you that that was the right course of action to take? They weren't looking to God as their shepherd either. It seems like they're relying a lot on Moses. Now, of course, Moses is like this physical expression, right? Of like the, the, the power of God. And that's why he's a Christ type figure. But Moses is not Jesus. He's not as good as Jesus. But still, they're, they're looking to Moses primarily as their shepherd and not God. And so they're quick to abandon God, the God of Moses that they haven't claimed for themselves. They're quick to abandon the God of Moses because they were committed more to a man. It's so quick, man. Aaron, essentially, looking to him as the new Moses. Make us new gods. New gods, new shepherd. They're not waiting on God. They're not believing he's going to come through or trusting. And here's, this is the harsh reality, but you got to understand this. Some of you trust more in people and YouTubers like myself, more preachers, uh, ministers, people that you really trust. You look more to them than you do to God. And you rely more on their wisdom than you do in God. Whatever they say, you don't even think, you don't even like think to go back to the scriptures to fact check them. You're like, well, they've never steered me wrong so they can never make a mistake. And that's a mistake. And you're not waiting on God if you trust infallible men more than God. If you're going, People are the source of my wisdom. People are the source of my understanding and knowledge. And people tell me what to do more than God does. You're not really waiting on him. Well, they're godly people. That doesn't mean they're infallible. And watch this. They grow impatient. Is that not the temptation for us to grow impatient? We get bored. We get anxious. We get impatient. And they do too, waiting for Moses. And that boredom gave birth to sin, didn't it? Boredom produces disobedience, if not brought to God. It will. Uh, my kids never do anything good when they're bored. <laughs> I just, they don't. I'm bored. 
hey, let's beat our dog. Say, like, whoa, whoa, there are other options, buddy. Like, there, we should really think through this. How about grab a snack? Uh, we're really bored. Let's swing our undies around and then, then like run around the streets. Well, I think there's a middle step. I think there are other things you can consider before doing that. When it comes to this, this, this impatience, this boredom, the boredom is kind of the result of impatience that goes, uh, goes on too long, right? Whether you're impatiently waiting to get somewhere, like my kids, or you're impatiently waiting to do something fun for the day, or you're impatiently waiting to be entertained. We live in an entertainment-centered culture. Every second of every day we have to be entertained. While I'm brushing my teeth, I gotta be watching a TikTok. While I'm on the toilet, I have to be watching a YouTube video or listening to a podcast. I have to be entertained 24-7. That entertainment-based culture is what breeds this kind of mentality. Where if God doesn't do something long enough or doesn't entertain me fast enough, I'll move on to something else. That's what the people do here. God didn't meet their expectations. First of all, their expectations weren't aligned with his word anyway, or his character. God didn't meet their expectations. They didn't want to wait anymore. They didn't know how long they'd wait. They weren't sure what happened to Moses, so they move on. And you're not truly waiting on God if you allow your impatience to breed disobedience. Impatience has this knack of breeding disobedience if unchecked too long. Now you can be impatient and go, Lord, for, like make me, I, like help me to be, to be um, patient. Like I'm bringing this impatience to you. I have these expectations of you. You're not working fast enough. You're not healing me fast enough. You're not restoring my marriage fast enough. You're not getting me to a place where I'm financially stable yet. Where are you? I, I, I'm being impatient. I'm bringing this desire to you instead of acting on that impatience myself. And sometimes my kids are bored because they had expectations of me I never gave them permission to have. They expect me to be done faster with, with work. They expect me to finish a project by a certain time. When's our playhouse gonna be done? It's been, son, it's been literally 30 seconds since you asked me that. It's the classic meme. When you look at your, the clock four minutes later, or three hours later, it's only been four minutes, that's the idea. And we do the same thing with God. We're looking at the clock going, my gosh, it feels like years. It's, all, it's only been a couple months. Give him some time. Don't let that boredom and those unmet expectations to produce frustration and bitterness in you. Bring that to him. Bring that to him. Go, I had these expectations of you. I'm starting to think they were never of you to begin with, Lord. This one's going to be a shorter one. King Saul. In 1 Samuel 10, before he is actually the king, he's the first king of Israel, the first garbage king. Samuel the prophet tells him what's going to happen. He goes, hey Saul, you're going to be the king. It's going to be great. You're going to meet some prophets. They're going to be prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You'll be turned into another man. Here's what I want you to do. When these signs meet you, God is with you. Do what your hand finds to do. Go down before me to Gilgal. Okay, here's some clear instruction. Go down before me to Gilgal. I'm coming down to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Samuel has stated what he is going to do. I'll be there. Wait for me. Seven days you shall wait. Now, for the first time in, our, in this sermon, we actually see a clear time frame. Very clear deadline. In seven days, wait. But that's not the only kind of uh, filter. Here's the other one. 
until I come to you. So if seven days pass and Samuel doesn't come to him, right, he still needs to wait. Because what marks the end of the waiting here is not just the seven days, but when Samuel comes on the seventh day. And I'll show you what to do. Okay. Now we're going to fast forward to 1 Samuel 13 when Saul is at Gilgal waiting for Samuel. He's surrounded by the enemy Philistines. He's pressured. They're closing in. His own army is scattering from him. He's freaking out thinking, I'm going to die. We're going to lose. I'm going to be the worst king in our history. And I'm the first one. Great start to our nation's history. And here's what happens. Verse 8. Saul waited seven days. The pressure's building. How do we know that? Because um, Saul was still at Gilgal. All the people are trembling. And we're going to see that the people actually start leaving him. Uh, I forget where. It's like down here, maybe. It'll show it. He waits seven days. The time appointed by Samuel. Okay. Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. I waited seven days. You're not here. Okay, toddler, the people were scattering from him. There it is, okay? Saul's army, which is really the force of his strength and the way he's going to win this, this battle, they're leaving out of fear and terror and trembling and all this pressure's building, all this anxiety's rising. And Saul, as the leader of the nation, is looking around, looking at his force scattering. He's under some tremendous pressure. Not going to minimize that. So here's what he does. Saul said, in every one of these scenarios we've looked at, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, um, Israel at Sinai, and now here, someone proposes an idea. The serpent proposes, Eve, eat the fruit. You'll be like God. Sarah proposes, sleep with Hagar, Abraham. Right? Israel proposes, hey Aaron, make us a God. Now Saul says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That's, if you don't understand Levitical law, that's a no-no, a big no-no. He is not the anointed, appointed priest to do this kind of priestly duty. That's not his job. He doesn't have a right to it. He's acting outside of his authority. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came. Oh man, same day. He just didn't wait long enough. Saul went out to meet him and said, hello. Samuel said, what have you done? What the? And Saul said, when I saw the people were leaving and you didn't come within the days appointed, Samuel, you didn't come. And the Philistines are mustered at Michmash. Can't even pronounce it. Now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I sought myself. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I forced myself. And Samuel said, you, you have done foolishly. You dummy. You have not kept the command of the Lord. Your God, which he commanded you. It was a command to wait. Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now it's not going to continue. Sucks for you. God's moved on. That's how the story ends. First thing you got to see 
is that Samuel actually, back in chapter 10, said, I will show you what to do. If Saul waited, Samuel would have given him the direction and the action to take. Instead, Saul assumes to know best. Is that a theme? When you don't wait on God, you assume to know better than him. You assume to not need his direction or his, his, his uh, clarity. Saul assumes to know best, figured out something to do, and it's to violate his, God's command. You're not waiting on God when you do something he didn't lead you to do. Now, there's a difference between me taking initiative and me presuming to do something God never told me to. Initiative is a good characteristic. It's a very good value to have. Take initiative. Don't sit and wait for a reason to be faithful and help people. I'm not against initiative. I'm against doing things that God has not indicated or prompted or convicted or led you by his spirit to do. It's when you have an idea to do something that God didn't actually validate or approve of and you call it faithfulness. That's the problem here. It went against God's command. You can justify this all day. Saul could be like, I'm offering to God. I'm seeking his favor. This is the best thing I could do. Is like, This is wonderful. Samuel's going, no. You violated the, the command of God. I, I am the prescribed priest to offer these offerings. Not you, Saul. And we do this all the time, don't we? Well, I'm doing great things. You're actually transgressing the command of God and going beyond what he's called you to. In the process, again, disobeying his word and violating his character in the name of being and taking initiative. What we also see here is, he said, I saw the people were scattering. You didn't come. The Philistines are closing in. There's tremendous pressure. There's a burden of leadership. There's a fear of death that's pressuring King Saul into doing something that actually was against God's command. He stepped outside of his authority. He went beyond his God-given authority and permission. God gave him permission to wait. He chose to do what only the priests have permission to do, to offer sacrifices. Samuel said he would do it. Saul said, I don't think he will, so I'm going to do it myself. Is that not what Adam and Eve did? I don't think God's going to help us know knowledge and good, the knowledge of good and evil and help give us wisdom to rule, so I'll do it myself. It's Abraham and Sarah, I don't think God's going to actually give us a child through Sarah, so we'll do it ourselves. Israel at Mount Sinai, I don't think Moses is coming down, so let's take matters in our own hands and make our own gods. It's the same story on repeat. It's the same story. People who would not wait on God, presumed to know better, were pressured. And look at Saul assumes a role he had no business playing. He assumed a responsibility he had no permission to perform. He functioned outside of his God-given capacity. And we do the same thing. And maybe it's not sinful. Maybe I'm not violating the commands of God. But I do end up stepping outside of my God-given capacity and the grace I've been given to do stuff. And I go beyond that and start doing things God never called me to, but I just really wanted to do it. And I stamped God's name on it. And I said, God is with me when he said, I, I never validated that or gave you permission to do that. And Saul was not willing to wait for Samuel. The pressure's building, just like Abraham and Sarah. The pressure's building, just like Israel at Mount Sinai. The pressure's building. And you're not waiting on God 
if the pressure of life drives your decisions rather than God. Some of you make every action you take is a reactive decision. You look at the pressure around you and to relieve that pressure, you try and take matters into your own hands and do something about it. You feel the pressure of that addiction, the pressure of that sin, the pressure of those people around you who are coming against your faith now, the pressure of, of financial you know, instability and the bills piling up, the pressure of your wife you know, saying that she's going to leave you if you don't. That You feel that pressure. And so you react, you don't consult God, you don't seek his face, you don't sit in his presence, you don't trust that he knows best, you take matters into your own hands and you do something he never called you to and you call it initiative. It's not initiative. It is not initiative if it's not validated or approved or led by God. It's not. You can have an idea and bring it to God. That's initiative. That's what Jonathan does in, in 1 Samuel. He has an idea. He has an idea. My little girl's at the door. I'm, I'm debating on whether I should unlock the door and let her in so you can see her. Um, so Jonathan has the same initiative, like a good initiative. He goes, hey, our army's not doing anything to attack the Philistines. We're just kind of at a standstill. This is weird. Hey, armor bearer, I have an idea. I have this suspicion that God can and he will, but I'm not really sure. I know he can. I'm just not sure if he will. So I'm going to let God verify and, and clarify to us whether he's with us in this, right? He takes initiative. He takes a step forward, but not without consulting God or asking God to clarify. That's initiative. That's initiative. Not having an idea to solve my financial crisis. Not having an idea to solve my relationship crisis and going, yes, I can do this. That's not initiative. It's going, Lord, I have this idea. And I see it as, I see it as a solution to this problem, right? You help me clarify whether this is from you. And you don't always have like the time to do that. Sometimes it's like in the moment. But you can at least run through the scriptures and the character of God and go, is this, is this honoring to God? Is, are you with me? God, please bless this if you are. If not, don't let it happen. You can do that in the moment. And we don't. You know, Saul was willing to wait up to a certain point. You said seven days, Samuel. You said seven. The time marker was not just the amount of days, but when Samuel comes, that would mark the end of the waiting. Saul was willing to wait up to a point. That's what some of us do. Well, I'll wait as long as God fills in the blank or until he fill in the blank or if he doesn't fill in the blank, then I'll take action. You'll take matters into your own hands. You're not waiting on God if you're only willing to wait for a certain period of time. Hear me loud and clear. You are not truly waiting on God if you're only willing to wait for a certain period of time. I'll wait this long. Now, there's a difference between that and going, Lord, I have about nine days to give this job an answer. You know, they called me and they said they have an opportunity and I love my job and I have nine days, okay? Um, so I'm, nine days is not that much, Lord. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna seek godly counsel. I'm gonna wait for you to clarify. Um, and, you know, if, if, you, if you don't do anything, then I'm gonna trust that's none of you. If you do something, and make it clear to me, or I'm gonna step out and do this, I'm gonna answer back, okay? If within the nine days they don't call me back, then I'll, I'll just believe that it's not of you. It's, it's almost like these, it's okay, I think Christians don't understand this, it's okay to like 
Ask God to meet your conditions of clarification. It's, it's fine. Jonathan does that. Gideon does that. People in scripture do that where they go, I need to figure out if God is with me. God, if you're with me, would you fill in the blank? You're not being presumptive or arrogant or like, God, you better. I demand it. I'm entitled to this. You're not doing that. You're going, Lord, I really want to do what's right. Would you clarify that you're with me by fill in the blank? Or if you're not, then do this. And I trust that you'll answer and, and work within, you know how I try and gauge whether you're with me. I'm trying. But if you're only willing to wait for a certain period of time, and that's it. You know, my kids do the same thing. My kids are the example for all of this because they're the example. I love them. They're wonderful. So, so gifted, man. So smart, so wise, so fun, so hilarious. But they suck at being patient. <laughs> Impatience is the marker of immaturity. And so my kids, they'll, they'll wait up to a point, but no farther than that. And anything beyond that ends up being disobedience. And it's this whole man-made deadlines thing, man. My kids do it to me all the time. Dad, you didn't come fast enough. When did I, when did I say I'd be back? Well, look at the clock, buddy. What time is it? The number one, two dots, a three, and a two. Okay. When did I say I'd be back? Three. Is one before three? Yes. So is it three yet? No. So why do you expect me to be back now? I just, and you start to really think through this yourself. Hmm. How many things am I expecting of God that he never said he'd do? Or how many promises have I been given that I've kind of redesigned and reformatted to fit my preference? Where God goes, for instance, this is a good example. God has clarified all throughout my life that I'd be a preacher. Okay. Along the way, I started to add other conditions to that promise myself. And I thought, it's going to look like this. It's going to be like this. I'm going to have this big of a font. Whatever it is, you start to add these different conditions. And you start to turn a promise of God into this, this creature that like at the core of it, it's still the general idea God's going to do. But you have all these different expectations. You would do the same thing. I'm going to be married, God. You gave me a word. You go, by 30, I'll have two kids. And God's like, whoa, Charlie. I said, you'll be I said, I'll bring you a spouse. Didn't say when. Didn't say how old you'd be. Didn't say what it'd look like. I said, I'll bring you a spouse. You start to almost put words into God's mouth and take the promise or the idea or word farther than he gave you permission to. The prodigal son is the last example of someone who could not wait. Someone who could not wait. Now, of course, it is a parable, right? But it is still worth drawing wisdom out of. There's a lot of wisdom in this. Okay. I'm just going to read up to verse 16. We all know how the parable of the prodigal son ends anyway, so I don't need to explain. He's restored. I had no idea. Jesus says, there's a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, give me. Ding, 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 ding. Adam and Eve, give me that fruit. Sarah and Abraham, give me that child. Uh, Israel at Mount Sinai, give us those gods. Saul, give me that sacrifice. Prodigal son, give me. It's the seizing, it's the taking. Give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now, he is reaching out for something that's coming to him. I want you to think about that. Every story we've looked at, 
have been people reaching out for something that's coming to them slower than they'd like, so they try and speed up the process, shortcut it, un compromise their values in the process, go around God's ordained process, they try and speed up the pace and go, God, your pace is a little slow. It's coming to them, right? There's a son coming to Abraham, right? There's wisdom and knowledge presumably coming to Adam and Eve over time. For Israel, Moses was coming back down. For Saul, Samuel was coming. And for the son here, he has an inheritance coming his way, but he's going, give me it now. The father though, okay. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, this younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and he squandered it. Reckless living. Seems like he wasn't ready to actually handle that inheritance he wanted now. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Then he comes to himself, runs to the father, he's clothed, a ring, a robe, all of that. Older son's like, you never gave me a party, dad. Mm. Dad's like, geez, didn't know I had a 30-year-old toddler. The prodigal son's story is one that kind of, I guess kind of sums up all the, the, the poor waiting we've seen in scripture. Kind of culminates in this story a little bit. Um, the son seems to demand, give me, give me. Seems to be entitled, seems to be a little self-centered. He couldn't wait until the appointed time to inherit the father's estate. Um, he rushed it, tried to shortcut it. He was impatient. He wanted to skip the appointed process. Here's what you have to know. If you're willing to shortcut, shortcut God's process the wrong way, whatever that is, there is an inheritance coming to us in Christ. We can't speed that up. It's coming at his pace. But there are things throughout our life God wants to do and accomplish and give us in this life, this temporary world, that he's going to do and give. And you can't speed that up. And the enemy's going to present you shortcuts and go, hey, if you just, you can kind of, you know. You're not waiting on God if you're willing to shortcut God's process the wrong way. I was going to say at all, but I, I thought to think, I got to thinking like, sometimes maybe God will actually like allow, not sovereignly allow you to shortcut things a little bit, which I guess in his time frame wasn't really a shortcut, but it was at the appointed time the whole time. So either way. I think the statement is correct. You're not waiting on God if you're willing to shortcut God's process the wrong way. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's the desire to be intimate with someone, whether it's uh, like financial stability, it's just ringing in my heart because I'm just looking for that. Uh, a house, I really want to be have a place to live so I can have my family in our own living space. <laughs> so believe me, I'm waiting for stuff too. But you're not willing to, if you're willing to shortcut that and go, I could, there's so many opportunities I had, hear me out, to, to like legitimately make more money in this online space. So many more opportunities. And I could have shortcutted, in some sense, the process of waiting for financial provision and leaning on God and trusting in His ways, but it would have violated my conscience. It would have compromised my values. It would have dishonored God. It would have put the emphasis on my efforts. I didn't see, it wasn't, and some of those ways weren't even bad. They weren't, they, they were neutral. Like they could have been good, but I didn't sense that God was actually approving of that, that it would have been fruitful. And so if the enemy or your flesh or the world presents you what you want on a silver platter, 
and it's in a way that shortcuts the process, will you say no? Will you say no? Like if, it, if it's, hey, you can have this, you just gotta kind of compromise your values, dishonor God, will you say, oh, I don't know, like I can say sorry later, I am forgiven. Or will you say, no, I'm gonna stand on the word of God and trust in his character. You know, the, the prodigal son doesn't seem to be mature enough to handle what he rushed into. The inheritance, he squanders it, reckless living. It ends up being like his downfall. Uh, they say riches, uh, scripture talks about riches with sorrow. And there are riches without sorrow. This rich, these riches ended up because he was the issue, his heart was the problem. These riches added sorrow to him. It wasn't a blessing, it became a snare. The prodigal son, his story shows that he didn't have the, like, the maturity to manage what he wanted now. Ding, 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 Adam and Eve. Abram and Sarah. The, the whole, you're not ready for it yet. It's not time. Wait. It's a theme in our life, man. If you don't have the character to sustain what God is bringing you now, even if you got it, you'd squander it. You'd waste it. It would ruin you. It would be more of a, 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 a snare than a blessing. To be honest, I'm believing for God to do great things in this ministry. A lot of things I, I can't even say because y'all wouldn't believe me. And you'd think I'm crazy. And I know God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And part of me wants to rush and shortcut the process so much. I'm like, Lord, it's been a lot of years. Can you hurry up? Like, I'm ready now. And I think the very fact that I think I'm ready now might be an indication that I'm not as ready as I think. And you're not waiting on God if you're rebelliously reaching for what God knows you can't handle. If, if it's not the right time and your character can't sustain that and you're not in a place spiritually where you can actually manage and enjoy that blessing and you're reaching for it anyway, knowing all that and it's in rebellion, and you're reaching for what you know and God knows you can't handle, but you're just, I want it now. You're not waiting on God. There's a right time for everything God does and gives us in our life. And you know what? He ends up being in need after getting what he thought he really wanted, the inheritance. How, how do you end up being more poor and more in need than when you started by getting more money? Ask any celebrity right now. And the interesting thing is, he seems to already have, have had an idea of how he would handle his money. Right? He leaves, goes and squanders his money, reckless living. We can only assume what that means. Right? Many days, not many days later, the son, younger son gathered all he had and took a journey. This doesn't seem like a flip of the switch, like, now I have money, I can go places. This seems like, if it's not many days later, this seem, you knew what you were going to do with that inheritance. He already had an idea of how he would handle and manage what he was waiting for. He made plans and provisions for what he was waiting for. And his impatience made plans for what he didn't even have yet. And you can call it faith when you're like, I'm making plans and making preparations for what I know God's going to do. Uh, it's faith. Sometimes it is. Other times, when you're planning and preparing for how you're going to use something now, when you're not ready for it, it's no longer faith. That's impatience. That's lack of trust in God. You're not waiting on God if you're planning to dishonorably use what he gives you. 
the, the, the son didn't have like a, I'm gonna go feed the poor. I'm gonna start a ministry. I'm gonna, again, it's a parable, but the point is the money is used on reckless living, sin, flesh, wickedness. And if you're planning, if you're waiting for something, let's say you're waiting for a house, money, spouse, job, new place to live, ministry started, online content creator, YouTube channel, whatever you're waiting for, if you're already planning to do something dishonorable with that, and you're like, ooh, I could fill in the blank, you're not really waiting on God. Because you're making plans for something he's going to give you, you're making plans to dishonor him with that. The last thing is this, and I think this is the biggest point I want to drive home for this entire sermon. And I'm going to say it up front. You are not waiting on God if you're willing to sacrifice intimacy with the Father. You're not waiting on God if you're willing to sacrifice relationship, friendship, intimacy with God. The impatience and lack of waiting move the son away from the father. He doesn't have his inheritance and go, now we can have a better relationship, dad. He actually detaches, runs away from the father. He wants autonomy. He wants that independence. He runs away from the father. And he wants his inheritance actually in place of his father. Who does that sound like? I'm just going to say Adam and Eve again. Autonomy. I want knowledge of good and evil and wisdom without you, God, so I don't need you. So I can be my own God. So I don't need you in the equation. Bing, 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 bing. Prodigal son. Instead of waiting with his father, he wanted what would distance him from his father and make him no longer need the father. In other words, self-reliance and autonomy is the foundation of impatience and not being willing to wait. We don't want to need God, and we don't want to wait on Him sometimes. We often, our flesh wants what allows us to not need God, or what gives us less reason to lean on Him. And it distances us from our Father as children of Him. And you're not waiting on God when you want something detached from God or in place of Him. And you know what? The fact that the prodigal son couldn't wait for the appointed time, the right time to inherit, he rushed it. It actually drove him into lack and need. That wouldn't be supplied by the father because he's away from the father. He's in exile where there's only famine and lack outside of the presence of the father. That's what you need to understand. Is that all waiting should lead us to the throne, not away. And if what you're waiting for becomes a reason to lean on God less or drives you away from God or even impedes on your relationship with Him. Well, I don't have time to really spend with God because my ministry is exploding or I don't have time to sit with the Father because my spouse needs me. I don't have time to sit in the presence of God and read His Word and pray and seek His face because my kids, all the things you've been praying for and waiting on. And I had this house now I got to tend to, I got to work on it, I got to make sure it's like, up. I'm trying to be faithful, God. No, you're, t- you're calling a disregard for his presence initiative. That's what you're doing. It's initiative. No, you're disregarding his presence, which is the only thing that allows us to enjoy what he brings us. Because you can have stuff, you can have what you're waiting for, but if you don't 
have this deep intimacy with the Father and an abiding friendship with God that's growing each day, you can't enjoy what you're waiting for, even if you get it. And sometimes my kids want what I can give them more than they just want to be with me, more than they just want time with me. And it hurts, I'll tell you, that cuts deep. That cuts deep when they, when they like use time with you as a way to get what they really want. And then they run away, it's evident. When I get my kids a toy they've been wanting and we go to Target and they're like, yes! And then they get it and it distances them from me or they run into the other room now that they have it. They don't even know I'm around. They forget me in the process. They wanted my hand and not my face. They wanted what I can give them and not relationship with me. And instead that thing distracts them from me and takes them away from me just like the prodigal son. So you're not really waiting on God. If what you have now or what you're waiting for is actually going to uh, ruin your intimacy with the Father or rob you of time with God, you're not. It's not waiting on God if it distances you from Him or if you're being distanced from Him. Boom. That's the biggest thing you could take away from this whole thing. The biggest thing. And if there's anything I want you to take away, it's that. That the presence of God is ultimate. Above the stuff he does, above the stuff he gives, above the things we can have from his hand, he is the greatest treasure. Now you know how not to wait on God. You have an idea. So you can start to evaluate in your own life when these mentalities and ideas start to arise in your life and in you and you're like, ooh, start to feel that. I'm starting to, I'm starting to sense that. You can know I'm not really waiting on God. Let me correct that. So I hope this provides you a filter um, and just a way to recognize in your own life. If you guys didn't already know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. Go to abovereproachministry.com to find all our free resources. Free Bible study courses, free Bible study devotionals, free Bible study workshops, our free online church on Discord. Come join. It's lit. That's what the kids say in 2019. Uh, you can get my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Christian Life. You can join our online church. You can get some merch. Enjoy all our free resources. And if you'd like to donate to this ministry, I have a wife and two kids. I'm a real human being with a real family and real needs, and this is the, the way that I support them. Um, if you wanna support this ministry, go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. All the links I'm giving you are right here in the description below. Go check that out, and you can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, your debit or credit card. You can send a check to PO Box 338, Green Cove Springs, uh, Florida. You can uh, buy some church merch. All of that makes all this content completely free and available to everyone around the world, all this stuff. Um, so thank you for those that invest and make this possible and help my family and I not scrape the bottom of the barrel and not have to not have food. We actually have food. So thank you. Um, we can actually be sustained and keep doing what we're doing. So I hope this blessed you. I will see you guys next week for the next episode um, that is going to be all about waiting on the Lord. Let me know in the comments really like what you took away from this. It'll be helpful for me. Help me in future content. Let me know what stood out to you. Let me know what ideas really rocked you and what God really did in your heart in the sermon, uh, what you took away. Let me know in the comments. That'd be really helpful and a blessing to me, all right? And I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus. Love you guys.